this is Shirley Smith with Bridge the Gap. Today we have a wonderful guest. Her name is Dr. Hope Thompson. She's an epidemiologist with uh, the CDC there in Atlanta, Georgia, and we are so happy to have her today. As you know, our themes are to talk about how can we improve our own mind, spirit, soul, and body as we build relationships as opposed to the division that we now seem to be experiencing within the United States due to election and other things uh, within our country. So we look forward to hearing the wisdom of Dr. Hope Thompson today. So hang in there and we will be right back in a second. Um, You are in the nonprofit realm. I had just graduated from college and I was looking for some work. And we connected through a nonprofit organization where I started working in did some part-time work there for a little while. So, quite a long while now. Okay, that's right, because you actually worked for a nonprofit that I was helping with at one time. I forgot about that. Yeah, long <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Well, what have you been up to since then? I mean, what I know that you were in school, and I think when we first met, you were working on your master's, and I was actually in school working on my master's of divinity at Mercer. And you were at, was it Walden? Uh-huh. Okay. Right. And so now you have gone on, and what have you done since then? Yeah, so at that time, um, I was working on my master's in public health, and I received that degree. I graduated. And then I liked that so much, I decided, well, I'm not going to get a degree. So I went on and got my PhD, um, and that was also public health with a focus on epidemiology. And since then, I went on to do, well, when I was finishing my master's, I did a capstone project where I worked at CDC for a while, um, about a year and a half. And then um, I came back to CDC in 2014, and I've been working there ever since. Um, I started working in reproductive health in epidemiology. And I did my dissertation. I did some work with Native American and Alaskan Indians. Um, that was the focus of my dissertation, looking at um, interventions in maternal populations. Oh, okay. Child health. And then, yeah. So how was that? Did you, did you actually visit? Did you actually visit some of the um, Native American uh, reservations? Did you actually visit with some of the reservations? Good, good. 
I know that's something that um, not only have we as African Americans um, had an opportunity to to you know work in various areas, but they have I think received some of the bias and racism that we have received as far as living uh, in this country where we are minority. And so I do know other people who worked with Native Americans to learn more about their culture and see how they can help in the area of health. And so you did your dissertation, was it, uh, with regards to the Native American situation there with, with children, with I guess childbirth and and other health issues that you were able to write about. So what I looked at was maternal intervention okay. um, during pregnancy because there are a lot of issues that occur during pregnancy that can lead to negative birth outcomes. Oh, and I see. So I was looking to see what kind of interventions were already in place, okay. um, and so I looked at a time span of 20 years. Oh, okay. um, this was uh, oh, this was a little while ago now. So it was like 2015 back 20 years. Okay. And just looking to see what interventions were already in place to help mothers have better birth outcomes. Okay. Okay. And and are you familiar with some of the uh, statistics? I guess with African American births too. I'm hearing that uh, there's. Uh, you know, well, it's not certainly not opportunity, but it sounds like we're having some issues with African American births, where there are people not only losing their their baby, but the mother is passing away as well during childbirth. Yes, definitely. Um, so that was one thing that I focused on in general was maternal mortality, mortality and morbidity. Mm-hmm. So morbidity are the risk that lead to mortality, which is the death of a mother. Okay. Um, and so, yes, there there's a threefold chance that an African-American mother will either die during pregnancy, lose her baby, or die shortly postpartum after she's given birth mm. to her child. Okay. Yeah, and so there, there are a lot of factors interrelated to that and um, that, that's one thing that I'm really passionate about, um, those sort of health equities and inequities, trying to reduce those disparities and okay. get mothers not to Okay. So, I mean, this is all very interesting because um, with us going through, you know, having discussions about affordable care and insurance in America and all of that, it's... Um, as if we really do need this Affordable Care Act um, insurance. And it needs to probably be better <laughs> provide for more people than to for it to change to providing less or for it to become more expensive. Mm-hmm. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. So tell me, what, what was something, some of the things that you found that was most shocking when you were dealing with uh, Native American um uh, people and there's information about their health. So I will say when I went in, I was very naive. I had no clue um, at all. <laughs> I I thought, honestly, and this was completely off base, but I thought they were doing pretty well. Um, I thought Native Americans had 
reservations, they are sovereign nations, they are protected, they have the IHS, which is the Indian Health Service, which is specifically insurance and medical clinics and hospitals being specifically um, for them. And I thought, yeah, oh, that sounds great. And then when you get into the nuances and you really go to a reservation, you really sit down and talk with people, do research, you realize that it's not that way, that that's the ideology and that's the way it should work, but it doesn't. You know, um, IHS is fund if necessary. So what that means is they have limited funding. It's very limited. And then once it's gone, there's nothing. So um, a lot of times people aren't able to get the services that that they need because there's just not the money there to provide it. Another thing is reservations are often in the middle of nowhere. Um, They are usually pretty big, hundreds of acres, but they're very far from, I guess what you would say, consider like civilization. It's very far from the city or towns where you have, you know, a Walmart or a grocery store or something like that. They're very far from that. And what that means is that while, you know, there might be a hospital that can provide services and that they're able to, in um, in ideal, get to, that the reality is that they can't. You know, it may be literally hundreds of miles oh, wow. from their reservation. Do they and have so, doctors and nurses at least available on the reservation for uh, some type of uh, help? At least very in- limited amount. Very okay. limited amount. They often don't have enough per square mile or per the volume of people that they have. Okay. Um, and again, you know, they may have three on the reservation, but they're 50 miles apart. And oh, I see. Oftentimes, they don't have transportation, or they don't have reliable transportation, so they're not able to get there. Um, and if you think about, their, they, let's say they have a high-risk pregnancy, um, where they may need to go to the doctor more than, um, you know, someone who's not high-risk pregnancy. They may have multiple visits they need just to monitor their health, monitor their baby. If they're not able to get to these appointments, or if something happens, you know, and it's an emergency and they need to really get to a hospital quickly, that's not a reality, unfortunately. Okay. So, there's a lot with that. So, I was just really shocked um, to see how I, my perception just in general was, yeah, they're doing great, they're doing fine, they have a lot of resources, and then the reality is that that's just not the case. It's not true. And I, I, I think a lot of people don't really know that. And um, so that leads to a lot of preconceived notions, you know, okay. like, oh, they're, they're fine. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's interesting because I have talked to uh, some students who are focused on missions, doing missions in the various reservations within the U.S. And they have actually come away very disappointed after a few years and say that they cannot 
they actually cannot remain on the reservation. They just feel that the life is too hard. They um, see that they wonder whether or not they're really helping. And so I do know of some who have decided to return to, you know, their native state and then just prepare anybody that feels that they're called to the reservation, mentor them because they feel that it's not just like you're saying, they were so surprised. And even after living there for a few years, they just found that they became discouraged because they just felt like the the problems were much more greater than they ever expected. And no matter how much they tried to help, they just felt like the conditions were just not there and the support was not there for them to actually be yeah. very effective. Yeah, and I also think something to consider is you have to be aware of the resilience of the people in general. Um, they don't want some savior to come in, you know, and look at them like, oh, poor us, mm-hmm. we're so pitiful, we need help and we need saving. Mm-hmm. Because even in spite of the conditions that they're living in, and, and I want to be clear that it's not all, because I have been to other reservations that were amazing, <laughs> um, you know, very, very nice, um, beautiful casinos, beautiful restaurants and their Native American and Alaska Native seem to be doing much better than other ones. So I just want to be clear that there are varied um, types of reservations and, and conditions that are happening. But okay. to be aware that some are, are not doing okay. really well. A lot actually are not doing well. But um, they're very, even in spite of their conditions, they're very resilient. You know, they'll tell you no, we're making it work, and, you know, this is our life, and we're making the best of it. But you just, it's a fine line, because, you know, I work for the government, and, and when you come in, they know. Okay. Um, regardless of your race, you know, whether you're a brown person like them, or whatever, they look at you, you're the government, and okay. the government has not been kind to okay. Native and you just have to, to be very aware that they are apprehensive about okay. what you're doing there and are trying to take something away from them. Mm-hmm. So I think it is sometimes, you know, very difficult to um, mm-hmm. kind of, like you're saying, bridge those gaps. Mm-hmm. That is very interesting. I remember being in South Africa years ago. And one of the things that I was talking with a medical doctor about is AIDS and HIV because they had, or had at the time, and I haven't kept up with it, unfortunately. But um, the thing that I was talking with the doctor about is the, the orphans that were left because parents who passed away with AIDS or, H- or had HIV. And one of the things that the medical doctors said is that they felt that They didn't want the medicines and the pharmaceuticals from the United States and Europe because they felt like they were being used as guinea pigs. And what they really wanted was nutrition. They wanted a way to, uh, you know, set up gardens, provide fresh food, 
because they found out that even if people had AIDS or HIV, if they could give them nutrition, that their life was would last at least a little bit longer. Uh, but they found out that the pharmaceutical companies, the large companies, were basically coming over and just using them as test case, trying out their drugs, and their drugs were not helping. So it's it's interesting. It seems like that theme does go to, you know, various areas where our government has been involved and where large large corporations have been involved. As a matter of fact, I think that maybe some of the fear that we even have when it comes to COVID and a vaccination for COVID, that um, some of us are concerned that is the vaccination going to be helpful to us because there is history in the United States and some of that history, some of that history is that even when we were given vaccinations back in the 1950s and 60s, that especially with African Americans, uh, there was there was things given to us as uh, immunizations, but it was something that seemed to start uh, cases of of uh, cancer. Uh, in one of the books that our book club has read, it talked about uh, their ex- the expectation of um, just an outbreak of cancer in the United States in the year 2000s because the book was written in the 1900s. And that has seemed to become true. So people are reluctant uh, to, you know, just receiving, I guess, <laughs> from the government and receiving from large corporations especially when they're minorities. So I can understand how the Native Americans would feel about a government person coming in and interviewing them because it probably does feel more like, what do you want now from us? You're trying to you know, get additional information. But now you have actually moved on from uh, looking at mortality rates of the Native Americans and you're focused elsewhere at this time? Yes, I'm now. Um, in smoking health and looking at tobacco Okay, okay. Well, considering um, the mind, body, soul, and spirit, and based upon the information and you're working in the health field, what have you decided is the most interesting of these areas that you personally would like to work on, whether it's the mind, the body, the soul, or the spirit? I would say probably the mind. I, I think that kind of governs everything else. Um, okay. For me personally, I am always about trying to understand someone else's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, we all come with our own biases and, um, you know, our, our perception of what the world is. Okay. But having an understanding that because that's your world does not mean that is how it is for someone else, you know. Um, you may have had a very nice, cushiony life, but not everyone has had that, you know. And even if, because I've considered myself to have had struggles, but, you know, there's always someone who has had it worse than me. Okay. Um, so I, I always want to keep an open mind. Um, and I, I do that by, I think it's important to engage in conversations with other people. I know there's been a lot going on. There's a lot of, I feel like, racial tension in the world right now. And um, I think 
we need to have uncomfortable conversations. Okay. You know, I think we have to call out racism. Mm-hmm. We have to, to identify that a lot of the issues are caused by racism. Okay. And I think it's important to also say that just because you feel like something you've done is not racist doesn't mean it is, you know? Okay. Um, again, that's about how your experience is versus how someone else perceives it, you know? Mm-hmm. Racism is not always overt, and I think that's how we as a society view racism, you know. Mm-hmm. If you're not going around calling people the N-word or, you know, in favor of slavery, then you're not a racist, you know. Mm-hmm. And I agree, yes, that is true, but racism also looks like if you walk by someone of another race and they clutch their purse and you're doing nothing but walking. You know, racism mm-hmm. looks like you wearing a hoodie and eating Skittles walking down the street and then you never come home to your family. Mm-hmm. You know, racism looks very differently, but it still doesn't mean that it's not racism because it's not how you perceive it to be. Mm-hmm. So I think having honest, open, hard, awkward conversations is necessary. We're never going to be able to get over racism as a term I hear a lot. Move on. No one alive as a slave. No one alive owns slaves. You know, and while that's true, we're still dealing with the residual effects of it. Mm-hmm. It's not gone. It's a very present thing. Mm-hmm. And we have to have these conversations and call it out if we ever hope to resolve it or eradicate it. Any of that. We have to do that. So I think that's the starting place having conversations um at least for me and then I also enjoy travel um I am someone who I like to kind of be like a local when I travel I I enjoy doing the touristy things of course but I like to see how the locals are living so um I'm usually a little bit more adventurous on when I travel um you know I'll try different foods or I'll go to some place that I maybe would be uncomfortable, you know, if I were home in America. Um, but I really do that to, again, just try to see how someone else lives and try to experience the culture. You know, sometimes it's very rewarding. You know, you have a lot of fun, you experience a new experience, and you just have a greater appreciation for people and the world, and, and I think even if sometimes you're like, oh my gosh, I never want to do that again, <laughs> you know, or that was crazy, I can't believe people are looking like that or doing that kind of thing, even if that's the person, um, you know, the experience that you have, at least then you know that, but what? just opening yourself up to those things, I think is important. So do you think some of your your love of travel, do you think that has anything to do with, like, with you majoring in epidemiology and having that mindset? Of, it's I, I think of it as being an inquisitive mindset on how can I learn more about this people group? How can I help more in this area? Do you think that's driven by that part of you? Or do you think you would just enjoy travel even if you were in a different field? Um, I think probably whatever I was doing in life, okay. I would love traveling. 
I think travel has always been something that thankfully I've been exposed to. Um, you know, I was never one of those kids that had never left my state or anything like that. You know, I was always the one coming back in the fall like, oh my gosh, we did this this summer, you know. And it, it wasn't always something extravagant like we went out the country or something, but definitely um, we traveled, you know, it wasn't just, you know, a few states over or whatever. Okay. Um, yeah, I remember I was in middle school, I think. Maybe I was in fifth grade. Fifth grade or middle school, I, the first time I flew on a plane, you know. And okay. I, I knew people that had flown until they were in the, well into their 20s, you know. Okay. Well, what is your favorite, <clears throat> your favorite country that you've been to? I've been to a lot of countries, yeah. Um, I can say my most anticipated one um, is Africa. Uh, I know that's a continent. <laughs> um, Any particular been, so... country in Africa? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, my uh, itinerary Egypt. I I want. I'm big into seeing things that I've only seen in books or movies or pictures. So of course I want to see the pyramids. Mm-hmm. Um, you know I want to go to the Valley of the Kings. Okay. Um, I, I want to see the Red Sea and take a cruise on that. <laughs> um, yeah, I was I was actually planning to do that this year. So Egypt, Egypt is a nice place. I have had an opportunity to go there and I did go down the Nile River. We went from the top of Egypt to the bottom of Egypt and we stopped all along the way. So that is a very interesting trip. The thing that I didn't get an opportunity to do that I would like to do, I had a chance to see more temples than I wanted to see. (laughs) There are lots of temples. Lots, I think about 66 that they've been, well, when I was there in 2018, they had uncovered about 66 uh, tombs. And the tombs are so large and so elaborate. Uh, we're talking the size of a house. One, each, wow. each five, each of the pharaohs had this, I uh, like a house <laughs> that they were buried in. And uh, which was really amazing. And so just recently on TV, I saw where they have unearthed another in 2019. So since I was there, they found even another huge uh, tomb that uh, has so many, um, so much in it. It's just a lot. But I know that you want to go to Egypt, but I know you've been to several places. What what are some of the countries you've been to so far? Um, I've been to... Uh, the Netherlands. I've been to France, um, Belgium, um, Spain. I really enjoyed Spain. I think my favorite place. Um, so we actually <laughs> went um, in 2018 um, on a European tour for about two weeks, and my favorite out of that was. Ibiza, as they say, but we, a lot oh, of us okay. say Ibiza. <laughs> okay. Um, but 
but I think that was probably my favorite. It was just so gorgeous. Hmm. Yes. Um, for me, I'll say, um, and this is just my personal opinion, um, not a representation of anyone or anything else, but travel, another part I really like about travel is that to me, it's my way of seeing God. Okay. And so when I see something that's just so amazing, like the water was so blue and yes. so clear, and to me that is just God. Mm-hmm. That that is that is no other way to explain it. You know, man is man is great, and we've done you know amazing things, but I still just think we would be nothing without God, and, and I just can't imagine that we could have done something, you know, so just perfect, you know? Mm-hmm. So to, for me, traveling, that's another way of me interacting or experiencing God, even even blind. And I know I tell people this all the time that they think I'm crazy. <laughs> but for me, like, that moment when you're on an airplane and you go from the ground to the sky, uh-huh. it, it gives me, it gives me And to go up on that mountain, it took took us about an hour, I think, an hour's drive to get up onto the top of that mountain. To me, that was mind-boggling. That was that was the most important, most most God-revealing uh, part of that trip for me. Um, and I know you guys had a chance to see more of France, I think, and Paris, and you know some of that. Um, I was running to the monasteries and to to Notre Dame and, you know, all of that because I just, again, what I like to do when I go out of the country is go to the monasteries to see art and different things that I have not been able to see in the United States. 
Uh, but I know that you've been to, haven't you been to uh, Costa Rica as well? I have, yes. So I how does that compare to those other countries that you went to? So in a sense, Costa Rica was better for me. And I'll tell you why. So Costa Rica was my first international solo trip. Okay. Um, I had not traveled alone. I had always had this fear of, oh my gosh, the transport mode of transportation that you used to go to Nicaragua? Took a bus. Oh, okay. Bus with a bunch of people. Okay. And a, a tour guide who was actually a native. And, um, yeah, we went to a lot of places. We went to the, the town square, which was very beautiful. We made cigars. We went to a chocolate factory and made chocolate. I mean, it was just, it was amazing. So, um... Did you... How did you... Did you feel uh, at home among the people in these various countries, or did you feel like an alien being there, or did you were you able to connect with people? Uh, what did you learn from just dealing with the different people in all those different countries? I was able to connect. I, I'm a people person. I'm, I'm going to talk to you. <laughs> I'm going to have a good time. So for me, it was really I think people were very open and friendly. Um, I did not experience any, you know, kind of negativity or people being unwilling, you know, to help or talk to me or any kind of thing like that. So for me, it was very, it was a very welcoming experience. Um, I learned that people are 
Did you have to wear shoes like with the spiky bottoms to kind of cling to the the mountain? No, not quite like the spiky bottoms, but you definitely needed like a real kind of shoe. I had like a little um, a shoe you just slide your foot in, but it had a good grip. Oh, okay. It had like a memory foam cushioning. Okay. Low 60s, you know, which was, uh, you know, freezing or anything. 
different things, but definitely very different from what I, the weather I had been used to in Tamarindo. And so it was, it had also rained for like three days, and it was very muddy and slippery. And so as I started climbing the volcano, I realized very quickly I'm gonna fall because <laughs> my, my my shoes were slipping, like they were sliding. You know, and so I said, oh, no, this is getting dangerous because we were literally going, like, straight up. It was very steep for, like, an hour. And so I said, there's no way I can um, do this. I'm going to fall. And so um, <laughs> the, the men on our group, they were so sweet because there were some times where I literally couldn't get up and they had to, like, hoist me up. And so they said, oh, don't worry, it's your size is not a problem. We'll help you. <laughs> and I said, I said, you guys are sweet. I said, it has nothing to do with my size. Said, I don't have the right shoes on for this, and it's too slippery. But and then, so how I would said, how would you have gotten down midway? Would wouldn't you have to so, come either go up or come down? You can't. How were you gonna so get? I, if this was maybe 15, 20 minutes in. When I realized, nope, I can't, I can't complete this. And so I just said, I'm going to turn around and just go back. Um, because another thing was, it was the evening. Um, it, it, the, it gets dark pretty early, because um, I was there in December and January. And so it gets dark around like 5 o'clock. And so it was getting dark. And I, that was the other thing I thought, well, when it's time to come down, I'm not going to even be able to speak. So I said, I need to turn back now. And, you know, they were like, are you sure? And maybe we should come with you. And I said, they should have came with me. <laughs> oh, really? Said, no, you you left the mountain, out of, you left the volcano by yourself? I did. I did. Because there was only two tour guides. And there was, like, one person in the front and one person in the back. And there was a good bit of us. There was probably 25 of us. Oh, I see. And I said, said no, you guys go on. I said, I haven't gone far enough that I don't remember how to get down, you know, and I'm, I'll just go really slow and I'll be fine. And they said, okay. So I had gotten almost to the bottom. I could see our butt in the, um, in, in, in the distance. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, girl, you've almost made it. You're, you're almost there. And I said, you'll be fine. And I, I just I mean, like medicine, or I mean, did you have to go to like a doctor or a hospital or a, a small agency so or did. something? They didn't even have anything. When I got to the, so I stopped when I hit the ground. 
delayed how is a cow delayed on the volcano as you were coming down or in that area? <laughs> Uh, toxins, like, you know, the, the sulfur and all that in the water. 
is for you do they use natural remedies like hot springs more so than they use uh, medicine or doctors or clinics because I'm just wondering you know how every country that's something I pay attention to when I'm in different countries what do they do to help people medically uh, and so is are there clinics or they, they never recommended a clinic sounds like you still you would recommend solo travel you know uh, traveling by yourself okay and then as far as as far as getting to know the people that did not seem to be a problem whether you were in Costa Rica or Paris France or Belgium (laughs) 
or <laughs> or Spain did did travel and communicating with people was that difficult or easy or as expected? Um, it was a little difficult. I won't say it was completely easy of it all when you look back on it it might be a little frazzling at first but I think when you look back on what you did and what you accomplished that you feel like okay I can do this and I can probably do this in most countries so it's I think it's the adventure part that's really exciting at least for me it is when I travel it's I love adventure I love seeing things I now I will not trust public transportation as much as you do. But <laughs> I don't mind going ahead getting a taxi or Uber or a Lyft or someone who knows the city. Uh, but as far as going out to you know further out, I I love that kind of stuff. I mean, my thing in France was not to see the Eiffel Tower. I had seen that, been there, done that. And I guess I was more interested in seeing the castles and things that were farther out, about two-hour bus drive out. 
But I think either way, the thing that I love about travel is that as I meet different people, people just become people to me. And so I no longer uh, focus on people as, do I know them? Are they a part of my usual culture? I just really find it really interesting that as you go to other countries and as you travel, you find out that you're going to meet nice people, kind people, helpful people. Uh, You can also meet some that are not helpful, but that is the way life is. And, And so that's another reason why I love to travel because it does help me to bridge the gap, so to speak, between um, people. Once you have an opportunity to travel and go places, even when you return to home and you meet someone who has been to that place, it's an automatic bridge builder. And so I don't know if you have found that to be true, maybe either with co-workers or with peers or with neighbors or people that you just meet somehow because you meet people you know easily you just kind of walk up and talk with people and so I have found that to be a real bridge builder where it opens conversation and communication with other people that don't look like me if I can talk about places that we both have enjoyed but maybe not at the same time you know just say oh well you've been to Paris yes I've been to Paris you've been to the Eiffel Tower yes I've been to the Eiffel Tower you know so it's just you know it's it's just a bridge builder uh and that's another reason why I like travel um of the places that you've been it sounds like you have Duolingo that you use and then you also use um the Google translation. So have do you use that in other countries or you just only use that uh, in Costa Rica? Oh no, I use that all, every time I go somewhere okay. where I know the native language is something I don't speak. Okay. Yeah. And what would you think about, like, in the United States, do you feel like you may have... Uh, dealt with more racism there than you did when you were in the other countries, or were you not? Or do you feel you weren't there long enough to to really tell? I think in America, it's a hundred percent. You definitely feel it. Okay. Um, Whereas you I, didn't feel it as much when you were in those other countries. No, I didn't. Okay. Um, and I mean, I've heard. You This is Shirley Smith with Bridge the Gap, just to let you know there it will be a part two, because as we continued our conversation, there was something that we thought that was imperative that you hear, and so we're going to get a little bit more into trauma, and then we're also going to talk about having a great mentor. So just wanted to make you aware that there is a part two, so make sure that you uh, think with us on that.